0: Welcome to the Mosavar-Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Thank
1: you for coming. My name is Scott Leland. I'm the executive director of the Mosabar Romani Center for Business and Government, which is hosting today's event. And it's my great privilege to be able to welcome today's speaker, Roland Coopers. Uh, Roland Coopers is a theoretical physicist by training. He has spent uh, many years in the private sector at both AT and T and Royal Dutch Shell, where he was vice president for sustainable development and vice president for global LNG. He's currently an independent consultant on complexity, resilience, and energy transition, as well as a visiting fellow at the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment at Oxford University. Uh, From his start as a theoretical physicist, he's taken that interest in complexity at at the level of the universe and applied some of the insights to more terrestrial matters, such as traffic patterns in automobiles, uh, epidemiology, disease outbreaks, and public policy. So, together with his co-author David Colander, uh, he's written a book, *Complexity and the Art of Public Policy*, the subject of his talk today. Uh, recently published by uh, Princeton Press. And at the end of the talk, when we do—actually, when we do the Q&A—we have some raffle tickets. will be pass- passed around, and we'll be raffling off several copies uh, of his book. So, with no further ado, it's a great privilege to welcome you, Rolla Coopers. Thank you very much.
2: So, thank you. Um, what I'd what I'd like to do in the next sort of thirty minutes or something is take you through some of the core arguments of the book, and then and then let's let's have a chat. Now, please, if you have a question along the way, just interrupt and, and ask it. Right, and I'll, I'll I may send you back to the end of the talk or answer it, but clarifying. oh sorry, yes, first question, please turn on your mic, thank you, um, is that okay, can everybody hear me at the back, it seems to distort, but maybe only in my ears, is it okay? It's fine without, it's fine without, yeah. is it better without? Yes, yes better, without. better without, better without, all right, Thanks. Yeah. all right, good, um, so please ask, ask a question, right? I've told this story before, so it's actually much nicer if somebody interrupts you and asks some clarification. So um, the first thing I'd like to start with is, you know, I live in the Netherlands, which is one of the, some of you may have even been, is one of the densest places in the world, and we've got horrendous traffic. Um, but one of the, but here as well, I am meeting this morning with a friend who got stuck in traffic on the way here. Um, So traffic is a a huge issue everywhere, and the the, the usual solution obviously is, well, we need to expand road capacity, we need to do something. Um, So I'd like to start this talk by telling you a secret. Um, And the secret is that there is a way to resolve traffic congestion um, at almost no capital cost, And within a year, you can increase road capacity by about 30% with with a very small tweak. Um, And how does one do that? Um, (coughs) It is, some, and some of you may actually have expensive cars, which I don't have, but expensive cars have a thing called adaptive cruise control. Um, And that's a cruise control that adapts the distance to the car in front, it adapts your speed to the distance of the car in front of you. And Dirk Helbing, who's a complexity science at the ETH in Zurich, did some agent-based modeling and demonstrated that if you only have 10% of their cars with adaptive cruise control, it increases the peak capacity of your roads by about 30%. Now, what happens, of course, is that instead of this kind of, you know, start-stop traffic, is it smooths out the traffic pattern so that it flows much more smoothly, and basically it increases the road capacity. Um, so there you have it. And since you know they, an average a car is on the road for about ten years, um, in about a year you have all the cars are renewed. About ten percent of the cars are renewed. If all the new ones have adaptive cruise control, whoop, you've got thirty percent extra capacity on the road. So that's great. But what
1: does the adaptive cruise control do? Keep a certain distance from the car
2: at the same speed? No, it adapts your speed. So basically, you know the thing when you have cruise control and the person in front of you is going like one mile an hour slower, and you go, should I adjust? Should I adjust? And it basically automatically adjusts so that all the cars settle like a train into the same speed. So you smooth out the field. Now, a secret um, is not much fun because now it's no longer a secret, right? So that was never the point. Um, The point actually, and and this is the, the core argument of the book, is why are these kinds of policy solutions, and this is a fairly trivial one, we'll get into more substantial ones later, why are they not considered? Why are they often left off the table? And that's really the, the core argument of the book. So this book came about, and it just came out in May. Um, together with Dave and Colander, we sat on a, <coughs> we were in a conference on climate change policy in Berlin, and we shared a flight back to Amsterdam, it was a fairly short flight, and we were both kind of uneasy with the narratives at this conference about how to deal with climate policy, and we thought, you know, they all kind of missed the essence of, of, of how you should find, look for solutions. And by the end of the flight, we decided that we were going to write this book, and we, we did over the past couple of years. And, uh, and this is the outcome. And, and it tries to explain, uh, to tries to get at this answer: Is why are certain types of solutions that are quite accessible not part of the solutions mix? So let's have another, just another um, traffic example. And uh, traffic is just easy, right? It's not terribly important, but they're great <laughs> examples. Uh, Mr. Monderman is one of the few Dutch people, his name is up here, uh, who actually made it to the front page of the New York Times. And um, Holland, being a small country, that is fairly unusual. And he was a traffic um, engineer. And he had a particular philosophy about traffic management, is that he said, if you get rid of all visible traffic signals, so red lights, stripes, sidewalks, you know, everything, just get rid of everything, and traffic will flow more smoothly and more safely. Now, that's not a small proposition. And an even bigger miracle is that he found a city authority he convinced to actually try this. Um, and again, you know, this is, is both funny, but it's also a core thing. About, you know, how do you, how do you get uh, policy authorities to consider a different type of solution? Um, and in Drachten, which is a town in the north of the Netherlands, they did this, they created a, a, a town square, and, and there are images of that. And it, it basically, you know, bicycles, cars, everything moves. And indeed, the traffic flows faster, and there are fewer accidents. Um, so you'd expect that now every square intersection in the Netherlands is structured this way. No, this is the only one. Um, and again, so you know what, what what is missing in the way we talk about policy solutions that these kinds of things are not able to enter into the mix. Um, so, <coughs> so there you have Mr. Monderman, who uh, they, the concept's called shared space, essentially. Um, and a weaker form of that is a roundabout, and, and that did make it into the public policy in the Netherlands. is not plastered with roundabouts. Traffic lights have gone and have been replaced by roundabouts. But it is something that you know clearly is within the comfort zone and, and fits within the narratives that we use for policy, whereas this was a bridge too far. Um, and you know one important aspect of this is that I've, I've held this talk in classes, for example, with people from India. i said, oh, this is great in India, it works exactly like <laughs> But it actually doesn't, because you know that intersections in India are actually, you know, traffic doesn't flow greatly and it's extremely dangerous. So what's the difference? This isn't a market fundamentalist solution, right? It's just, you know, let it go and it will all come out well. This works because it works within a very strict context of social norms. The Dutch social norms are different than Indian social norms, whether they're better or worse is a different story. <laughs> but you know there are um, you, you have uh, traffic people have uh, uh, driver's licenses, there's a court system that works. Uh, bicycles have brakes and lights to some extent for. <laughs> So you've got this entire framework of, of rules and context within which this self-organization can occur. So this is not a you know, market, let, let it all self-organize argument. This is, works within a very specific context. So what I'd like to do today is to stay with traffic for a moment, is we, we've gone through two examples is to go around one big roundabout on complexity, which is one of the big, uh, and some of you may be familiar with complexity and find this superficial, but I just do want to cover it. Um, a second roundabout on the history of economics, and then how. And this will be very brief again as of how it, it led to the narratives that we use in public policy, and then we'll come back to a couple of examples that are, have a bit more heavy weight, so outside of traffic. So the first... Um, the first uh, big topic is complexity science. Well, complexity science is, is not new. People often refer to it as the new science of complexity. It actually, um, most, uh, you know, whether you go back to Adam Smith or, or um, uh, Hayek actually wrote a whole chapter on complexity and economics. And so this, this argument's been around for a long time, but it didn't come into being until about the mid 80s when the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico was created that became the catalyst for complexity science. Um, now, no university uh, exists that doesn't have a complexity program. Um, in the Netherlands, for example, it, it's become one of the six core themes of scientific research funding. So it's, it's but it, 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 is, it, it, it is, so a few things about complexity. So what, what is a complex system? Now, complexity comes from the Latin, uh, plexus means braided. So this is um, not a simple, I mean, understand this is a triple braid for those who, are, who have enough hair to be able to do that. I mean, not me, but. Um, and so uh, intuitively complexity is about systems that are deeply intertwined, that are deeply interconnected, whereby if you uh, assume away or if you neglect the interconnections, you've actually lost something of the essence of the system. Now, you you know, the classic reductionist approach is to assume that, you know, cut something to pieces, solve for the pieces, and assume you've solved for the whole. And that's not a bad technique, right? It's gotten us all sorts of fantastic things in the world. So it isn't wrong as much as that in some systems, when you overlook the interconnections, you've actually lost something (coughs) really important. And so that's what complexity science is about, is understanding, you know, can we get to, to a point where we understand um, these systems for what they are. Um, so, what are some complex systems? Um, they tend to be actually quite a lot of things that we're really interested in. So non-complex systems, aren't there aren't that many. So the human brain is clearly a complex system. Uh, it used brain science for quite a while, and I'm sure you remember those narratives in, in papers were about, you know, language is here, and, and emotion is in that bit, and etc. and people are starting to come to grips with the fact that you know actually, it's a hell of a lot more complex than that. It's the combination and the interaction between different bits that causes the patterns as far as we start to understand it. Um, the, economic, the, the economy is clearly a complex system. Um, the assumption of you know, perfect rationale, will come onto that, but, but really overlooks a lot of it. Traffic, as we've seen, is a complex system if you, if you over neglect the interactions. And a traffic light's a classic case where you overlook the interactions, right? You just assume that if you direct it from the top, it'll work well. Um, and there are quite a few, uh, um, a few others. Social networks are complex systems. Um, now, what characterizes a complex system is the fact that you have properties at the system level that aren't, easily deduced or connected to the individual agents or the individual bits of the system. And that is easily said, but it's actually a very radical concept, which is that that system-level properties cannot be easily deduced from the individual components. Um, And in fact, the technical word is they emerge from the interaction of the agents. Um, And even worse is that they actually influence the, the, the agents back. So the classic, you know, the intuitive side is, think of a party, you know, a good party, is that just when, is that the sum of the individuals or is something happening between those people that somehow there's kind of a magic that gels and it's a good party. And, and the fact that it's a good party actually influences the, the experience of the people in it because, etc. I mean, it's a fairly trivial example but just to give you a sense of, of how that works. So this concept of emergence is at the very heart of of, complex, of complexity, and you know, of course, in the U.S., bumper stickers are the ultimate source of wisdom. So there are even bumper stickers that says, "Emergence happens," um, but but that is a very European view of the U.S. I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, but that's uh, but that is is the is the the big idea in complexity science that. Um, uh, that, that makes a real difference in how you, you frame issues. Um, it's starting, as I mentioned, it, it's, it, in most universities, this has penetrated the WEF, the World Economic Forum, most often referred to as Davos, um, has an agenda council on complexity and they, pr- they produced a rather wonderful four-page booklet called Perspectives on a hyper World, Insights from the Science of Complexity. Um, it's a very short, crisp articulation of why complexity is important for the way we see the world. And, and again, it's just a signal that if you know, it's made it to Davos, perhaps. At least it's one signal so that people care about it. Um, one, um, I'd like to show you a little application of, of, of complexity uh, science, um, which is a little simulation. You, you've all have seen, you have the experience, right? You, early in the morning, you see at the you know, all the wonderful nature around here, you see a, a flock of birds take off, and they, they have these amazing shapes, right, as they reconfigure and they fly around, and it's quite an extraordinary phenomenon of nature. Uh, now, there's no choreographer, as far as we know, um, and the birds actually, you know, aren't, they're bird brains, right, so they don't do very, uh, they do anything particularly sophisticated. So this is one of those examples where there's a collective Phenomenon that's very hard to deduce back to the individual components. So, what complexity scientists have done, and this is the classic approach of complexity science, is you can't understand it, simulate it on a computer, and figure out how it comes about. Um, And that's called Boyd's. It's probably somebody from Brooklyn who. uh, came up with that name, but basically what what they've done is they've they've reduced, uh, they've simulated birds that follow three very simple rules. And the rules are keep a certain amount of distance from the bird next to you or else you run into each other. Um, Keep to the average of Um, of the the birds around you and take the direction of the birds uh, around you. So they're they're very simple behavioral rules that even a bird can figure out. And when you simulate that um, this is what it looks like basically reproduce this absolutely wonderful phenomenon in nature. Um, And it gives you a sense of how such an emergent property of a bird flock can't be deduced mechanically from the rules that the birds follow. But nevertheless, if you simulate it, you see that, that, that that's the way birds and uh, behave. And of course, the point is, you know, c- what can we understand about economies and social systems, and how can we think about complexity? How can we think about policy in the same kind of uh, in the same kind of way? Um, so, you know, that was my my very very short uh, introduction on on complexity science. It is really about trying to understand those systems and how collective phenomena come about. So that's. Uh, a couple of chapters in, in this um, the other uh, big roundabout or component of of, uh, of the story which takes up uh, four chapters um, is the story is, if, is one of the most curious story intellectual story histories I think in the 20th century I think it's really remarkable I thought to, to explore and, and write up is how the history of economics in the 20th century got us stuck in a dual framing of policy narratives, um, and it's nobody's fault, which is also kind of interesting. But it's also an, an emergent phenomenon. I'd like to say a few things about that. Um, one of the founding the founding meeting actually of the Santa Fe Institute, which I mentioned before about complexity, was a meeting in 1986 um, where they got together ten. Uh, leading or, or important at least, uh, economists and 10 physicists for a workshop. And that was the start of complexity science. he said, why don't you explain to each other your disciplines and see where that leads us. Um, and you had you know, a bunch of no- Ken Arrow was there, Marie Galmans who was a sprinting of Nobel Prizes and it was a fairly, uh, fairly hefty uh, meeting. Mm-hmm. And one of the, uh, one of the, the physicists Characterized this meeting at the end, they said, "What would you think about e- economics?" And he said, "Well, it's fascinating. You know, economics is like a Cuban car. Um, it's wonderfully maintained. It's really amazing, but it's hopelessly outdated technology." And, and that was kind of the uh, that was kind of the, the, the physicist characterization of how uh, economics in its tools. Um, you know, got itself stuck in a kind of almost 19th century framing of of, uh, of the science, um, with, with all sorts of exceptions. I mean, this is a, you know a very rich discipline, but um, and it led, and this is the story we try to tell in the book. It led to um, within a, a science uh, two ways, two stories about how the economy works, which we can read about every day in the paper. At least, depending on which paper. You um, one way is to say, is the market fundamentalist route to say, you know, less state, well, you know the story, right? Less state, less, uh, uh, less regulation, and as long as you let the market figure it out, it'll all will be fine. Uh, which, if you remember my initial story about Monderman, the complexity narrative is not that, right? It's, it's, there's this context of rules, it's not the abandonment of all rules. And then there's this other narrative about, well, you really need government intervention, government control, and the state is important. Um, and these are um, you know, deep and rich and, and modeled, etc. narratives in economics. Now, it, it's curious, as a physicist, it's rather curious that you have such wild competing theories within a science. I mean, that in itself should give you pause to consider, you know, how is this possible? <laughs> But nevertheless, that's what happened, and, and it is really quite an amazing story, also about people and, and all sorts of things about how we got, how we, the science got to that state. But the science doesn't, and it leads people today um, to state things like, you know, why are central banks and governments still trying to predict the effects of their policies with an economic model that is manifestly absurd? Uh, you know, the, the DSG models that are the workhorse of economics in the financial crisis have failed, and there's you know there are a number of initiatives now within the science to try to to innovate, and and there are also there's programs in complexity economics and behavioral economics. I and mean, economists are 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 not stupid, of course. They understand and know this issue. So there's lots of work going on there. Um, but the interesting thing is it has led to narratives at the policy level, at the at the political level, that are. Economists you know, would say rather loosely based on the science, but nevertheless, that's how we got there. Um, the narrative about laissez-faire, um, uh, which is old, right? I mean, this is a laissez-faire, the quotation from the, from the, uh, um, from the 18th century. Um, and in and, and that circumstances, in the regime at the time, it rather made sense. It was quite a different interpretation than what laissez-faire means today. But that's one of the narratives about policy, um, and the other narrative, of course, is, is this whole narrative about government intervention and plans, etc. You know, caricatured in the, in, the, in the former Eastern Bloc economies, but but it's still those are the uh, the, the two dominant narratives in, uh, in in policy, and they all claim or believe um, that that there are these roots in science somehow. particular economics is the dominant social science. Um, and one of the points we try to make, and I don't really have time to go into that in great detail, is that those foundations are much weaker than people pretend. Um, from the fact that, that there are two competing scientific narratives should already give you a hint that they're maybe not as strong as they should be, or else you wouldn't have competing narratives. But the fact that these are scientific foundations plays a big role in the public policy debates because people sort of bring with it you know the cloak of, 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 of respectability of science that goes along with 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 laissez faire and with um, uh, with state intervention, um, and it's led, you know, largely to this left-right divide in politics, but not exclusively, because it's, you know, much more muddy. But, but certainly in economic policy, in social policy, it seems to be much more confused. But uh, uh, but the the, the, the essential uh, point we, we we're trying to, we want to bring out is that the the foundations of these narratives are much weaker than people pretend. And why that matters is because we're trying to introduce a third framing of of economic and social policy from complexity science. And also that isn't very strong, because complexity science is nowhere near having a scientific understanding of social and economical issues. That's much too hard. That will take a long time. Um, And the reason that's relevant is because the other foundations are weak, too. And if you're going to consider multiple frames, you have to understand the strength of those other foundations. So one way, one picture of of what we're trying to to say with this book is that you have different ways, and you can think of these as lenses or frames, but different ways of looking at the great public policy questions of education, climate change, unemployment, inequality. All the stacks of Piketty books around Harvard Square here. So I'm sure you've all absorbed that over the summer. Uh, but all the healthcare, all the big issues, you can look at those through an economics of control frame. You can look them at them through a market fundamentalist frame. An argument we try to explain how is that you can look at those through a complexity frame. Um, and the argument is not that that's better and the other ones are wrong. Is that the question is, can you have a discussion about which frame is the right frame for which problem at which time? So this isn't about saying one's better than the other, but how can you sort of rise above the argument and have a, an explicit comparison? Um, and so that the, the, these, these little trivial examples I gave you at the beginning about uh, adaptive cruise control and Monderman's shared space that you can actually have the debate about those, that you create the, the language and, and so that you're able to debate that and compare it with uh, traffic lights or you know maybe roundabouts or a little bit in that, in that. And then you can, because ultimately policies are making choices. right? But it'll, you, first of all, you have to have all the options on the table and then also have the cognitive frames and the language to be able to debate them with each other. And these exist by and large, even though they're not great conversations in many cases, uh, but people to a certain extent are able to debate that. But debating the complexity solutions is really hard. Um, so on our little traffic journey here, you know, having taken you very, whizzed you around uh, complexity science and how economics, you in know, a sense over promises, Uh, but has delivered a duality of narrative frames um, and how a third frame uh, might be uh, both important uh, and relevant. I want to now come back to examples and go through four cases of what a complexity solution to that case might look like and how it, it makes a difference. And again, not arguing that that's the right thing and all the other people are wrong, but that it should be part of the mix of things to be considered. So the first uh, the first example is obesity. Um, obesity uh, is obviously a big problem, as, as we all know. Um, it's generally described as a something caused by eating too much sugar, um, and we know that you know people's bodies are sort of from the stone age sort of programmed to crave sugar. So you get lots of sugar, you'll eat too much sugar. So the standard solution that's often is saying, so, well, we should pack sugar, we should you know, sort of, you know, prohibit supersized, um, big Coke sizes, as they wanted to do in New York, et cetera. So either market interventions or or, uh, or uh, uh, state controlled interventions. There's another way of looking at obesity, and in some of the complexity literature, people analyze. Uh, obesity as a contagious epidemic. And it has all the traits of an epidemic, in the sense that if you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who's overweight, you have a higher chance of being overweight. And of course, it's not contagious through a virus, but it's contagious because habits are contagious. And how does this work? You know, you have dinner with somebody, you say, yeah, shall we order a dessert? Yeah, come on. You know, it's this, this little prodding. Um, so there's a big question whether you look at this problem through a complexity lens and you recognize something that's related to the network structure and you see it as an epidemic or whether you see it as a thing to be fixed. Um, and of course, as you know, we see daily from this incredibly unfortunate Ebola uh, uh, thing in, in, in Africa, is that managing an ep- epidemic is, requires very, very different policies than managing something that, that, you know, spreads out equally over society. And it, you just get the wrong solutions, right? This isn't just about doing something a little bit better, but in particular kind of networks require solutions that are different. So if it is truly an epidemic, then the solutions of epidemics start to, right? You have to have containment, you have to create, you know, obesity-free zones, you have to figure out is who are the, who are the rapid who are the super-spreaders and all this kind of stuff, all this language then becomes important. Um, so, so this is a, a, an example of you know whether you frame something as a, as a network a complex system leads you to different solutions but you need to have some awareness of, of the importance of networks and how these kinds of things emerge to be able to even have this argument. Um, because the people who want to tax sugar you know, would say, "Yeah, is complicated network stuff. What are you talking about? is just tax sugar." Uh, whereas, uh, and and I'm not saying that that it's wrong to tax sugar, but just that again, you have to be able to consider all these policy options before you decide. Um, other issue is climate policy. Uh, as I mentioned, that's why David and I met. Um, <clears throat> you know, no small issue, but also one where. Um, in the, the IPCC came out with a, with the a newest assessment in 2014, uh, forecasting that the, in the base case scenario, the cost of climate mitigation, the economy would be no more than 0.6 percent of GDP. And I would say go wash your mouth right, if you dare to put that on paper. I mean, how, given the reliability of economic models and forecasts, you know, how on earth can you can you put this into a document? Um, and so this is a, you know, one of those cases of, of over-promising knowledge of the system, which, which actually doesn't exist. But those narratives have real consequences, right? People believe this stuff and they argue it. And, and the, um, Now the Stern, the Nick Stern, the you know, famous Stern report, uh, which is now uh, six or seven years old, um, had this narrative about um, uh, the cost being one to 2% to GDP by 2050. Um, th- there is a report by the Potsdam uh, Institute of which I'm one of the co- co-authors, and we were asked by the German government to write a report of what would European climate policy look like if you viewed it through the German lens. Germany has a radically different way of looking at climate policy than any other, almost any other country. So this, the German government said, "You know, why are we alone in this?" <laughs> could somebody please put on our lenses or look through our frame at European climate policy and see what that would look like? Well, our conclusion was that if there's a plausible story, we didn't go down the forecasting route, that you could have two to 3% extra GDP growth and six million extra jobs by 2020 already if you implemented more aggressive climate policy than we were on the route where we are now. And you know the reason all this, mat- you know, this this stuff really matters, right? So the the science and the framing of the issue leads to radically different stories and conclusions. And you know, how do we get those into the policy arena so that people can make choices uh, that are based on the real uncertainty of the issue, as opposed to fake certainties that are that are being provided. Um, and you know, one of the, it, it, another example of, of how looking at climate policy through a complexity frame <coughs> tells a different story. If you look at the most successful, or at least the most talked about German climate uh, policy was the uh, feed-in tariffs for solar panels, right? Um, for those of you who don't know, the, the German government implemented a high feed-in tariff. So if you have put solar panels on your roof, they would guarantee, the, the utility would guarantee to buy back the solar power at an inflated price, well above the commercial price of power. And that essentially spurred the, uh, um, the development of, of uh, solar power for Germany, but actually for the world as well. Um, now you can look at that story through different lenses, right? Oh, you know, they used market incentives and that clearly worked because they used the price mechanism to further Solar power. You can tell a government intervention story. Oh, you didn't let the free market do its work. Government intervened and put rules and regulations in place, and this is either a good or a bad thing, depending on what you believe. Um, Now, if you would look at this through a complexity lens, you would would observe two things. Um, Is that the brilliance of this policy is that it touched social norms. Because putting... An offshore wind farm doesn't do anything. It doesn't touch your life. Putting solar panels on your roof is an incredibly personal thing. Your neighbors ask, "Why do you do this? It becomes a conversation at a party. And people say, well, you know, you do that, but how much meat do you eat? And all of a sudden, it's it's a change from from, uh, just an energy policy to something that actually touches and starts to transform social norms. Um, so that's, that's something you see if you look at it through a, um, a, a complexity lens where you see that social norms are actually connected to economics. They're not something independent. They evolve together with the economy. And the second thing you would observe is that um, what the Germans were buying actually wasn't solar panels. They were buying a cost reduction curve. And that's quite a different thing, right? They spent 140 billion uh, euros or dollars, I kind of forget. Um, and they basically f- uh, donated to the world the cost reduction curve of solar PV. And that's a very different thing than saying, oh, you know, they've wasted all these subsidies and they should have let the market work and, and, all, and all these things. So, so you know, my argue, or argument is that looking at these things through a complexity lens provides you a different narrative about the very same thing. And again, it doesn't mean that the other ones are wrong, it's just that this is an additional dimension that policymakers should take into account. Now the last, or the penultimate example, so we talked about social norms, right? And one of the, one of the things that, one of the arguments we devote a whole chapter to, the economists typically take social norms as being fixed, right, they're not influenced by the system, etc. And we all know that's not true, right? Social norms are deeply, our own social norms, but they are deeply affected by what happens around us. So understanding the evolution of social norms with policy is actually pretty important. And and, the complexity tools start to help you do that. There's no way that this problem is solved, but they start to help you understand that. One of the examples we give is this this idea of the for-benefit corporation that's being furthered. You may have heard this um, as a third structure besides charities and for-for-profit companies, um, so that companies can create a different narrative about what they're about. I worked for 25 years in companies, also in AT&T, who paid for this room. Actually, <laughs> I just saw on the size guy, um, and then also for Shell. And the idea that, that you know, people come to work in the morning in order to profit maximize is ridiculous, right? That is not why people show up at work. There's it, a whole much more complicated set of social norms that it's play, uh, is at play. <coughs> and the question is whether the structures, we've, if you come up to a structure where the narrative, the social narratives, the Wall Street Journal every, every day tells you that your job there is your profit maximizing, you know, it does start to influence what people do. So, the idea with for benefit corporations, and we view it as a complexity policy, is that you open up a new space within which new systems can grow and evolve, but freely. I mean, people can choose what to do within that space, but the creation of the space requires a purposeful intervention. But then, what comes out of that is a bottom up evolution. It's not a. So, it's, it's, it's a. It's kind of a strange combination in the sense of, of both a, a top-down intervention, but also allowing market forces to work. Now, the very last example I would like to give is I started with is the, is the book that seems to be plastered around uh, Cambridge here, uh, which I actually uh, read by the poolside this summer uh, in French, because I grew up in France and I thought it would better to read the original. Um, it's a delightful book, actually, it's very readable, I don't know how many people have gone through it cover to cover at the Kennedy's? One. <laughs> it's like one and a half or <laughs> uh, It's well worth it. So the core argument, I mean, you've all read in reviews, right? Is about the fact that, that uh, uh, asset inequality, actually more importantly than income inequality, just a kind of a stocks and flows problem, right? Your assets is the bucket, and your income is the thing that fills the bucket. So they're related, but they're really not the same. Um, that that there the inequality is growing, and that we're slowly getting back to the pre-1914 inequality that characterized all of history. Essentially, before 1914, about two thirds of the people, uh, sorry, about two thirds of the world's assets were owned by the top one percent, the famous one percent. Um, and that, as far as we can tell, it goes back to the you know, the, the ancient Egyptians and the Roman Empire and all the way up to 1914, notwithstanding the American and French revolutions. So that's the story, and he tells it delightfully and with all sorts of literary references, and it's great. Now his solution, um, and this is where we, we part ways in a sense, his solution is to say, well, the way to fix it is to have a capital tax, right? Because that's the only way to reduce uh, which is a classic top-down intervention, uh, which isn't a bad idea because it would work. But one of the arguments that he makes in the book himself is the fact that the French Revolution was unable to influence income and inequalities in France. At the end of the 19th century, the distribution of assets and incomes in France was the same as in England. Now think about that, right? You, you got, the French Revolution wasn't a small policy thing, right? It was kind of a <laughs> You know, it, it doesn't come more radical than what people tried. To, they purposefully tried to put laws and rules and things in place so that the, the, the pre revolution <coughs> didn't work. Right? So, this wasn't just about, you know, why don't we introduce a slightly higher capital tax? This was people who were really you know, had it out for the rich and failed to get at it. So, in that sense, Piketty contradicts himself is that the top down intervention in theory might work, but there's no way it will ever get implemented. Because even the French Revolution didn't get anywhere near that. So we just don't have the capability within our structures to implement those kinds of things. So that takes you down, and I think through, and, and you know, it's subject of a paper or another article, but I think if you t- if you look at, at acid inequality through complexity lens, it starts to suggest different solutions that you can get at. Um, and, uh, but the first, for, the first thing is to have a proper debate about what the desired level of inequality in society are. So political parties should nail their whatever thing to the master, what's the expression? <laughs> um, so first you need to have a debate of where do we even want to go. And, and it's great if people disagree with that, right? I mean, we might have different positions. But then through a complexity frame, you would start to see a richer set of solutions, you know, clearly investing more in education will be important, um, you know, possibly, you know, certainly scaling up philanthropy, but does it all have to go through the state? Well, perhaps not, but how do you then scale that up so that there's more, are there other redistribution mechanisms in the state? And So you can start to think, you know, what's the, the importance of the structure of networks within that? Now, I don't claim to have all these solutions, right? Because this isn't the trivial problem. But just that again, this complexity frame would would start to introduce a different set of options in the in the policy narrative than just you know more taxations or hell no, it's great the rich get richer because they're rewarded for their efforts. Um, and so that uh, concludes um, my my uh, argument. Thank you.
1: And I think we have time probably for three or four questions. Uh, and then we are also going to be passing out some raffle tickets. And we'll do the raffle at the very end. So I'll leave it up to you to call your questions. Uh, I'm a little bit troubled by your description of uh, complexity
3: as a third frame. Because it seems to me it's really a meta frame. And in the book, you do talk about narratives. And uh, it seems to me that the, the two other frames are basically part of the narrative, a uh, larger narrative. And I think this is reflected actually in the title of the book, say, The Art of Public Policy, but it's not science. And one of my concerns about uh, complexity studies is that it's focused on science where the links all mean the same thing, but they operate in the same way. Whereas in complex social socio-economic systems, the links can operate in, in very different ways. So when you start introducing education as an alternative to tax, uh, in, in practice you often have the two mixed, and that's
2: that's part of this art of public policy. Yeah. Now. So thank you. Complexity science is nowhere near tackling social problems. But actually, it does go well beyond you know, just simple. So you can, in theory, model agents that you know, have, have, a, have a mix of incentives and links. So you, you can put all these things in. But you'll end up having kind of a minestrone model that will be so it won't really tell you something. So a lot of the science actually today looks at kind of toy models to try to understand the basic principles before getting to the, to this kind of stuff, um, and so that's why I you know I keep insisting that you know the science is not the complexity science is not going to help us with this in particular. Maybe someday and for some problems, traffic actually might work, um, and that's why I introduced this idea of a complexity frame. As a thing that sits above the science, but a kind of as equal distance as the other frames. So David and I had a lot of debates uh, over the years about, you know, whether you should position the complexity frame as above the other two, etc. And um, in science, you know, I, I think you can argue that complexity science is a is a number, is a further evolution of standard science in, in many ways. I think for the framing, it's profoundly unhelpful, um, because but, but this is a choice, right? And it's kind of an intellectual politics. <laughs> is we felt that it's that it's important to put these things side by side because it's it's easier for people to grasp that there's another frame they need to consider than to say this one's better or sits above your existing frames. I just I think it doesn't get you anywhere. Nor do you really have the arguments to. Because these frames are fairly nebulous as, as, it goes anyway. So it's a strenuous argument to try to put it above. So why bother? Because it's more effective, I think, if you put them side by side.
1: continues. Yeah. That... Well, <laughs> yeah. So
2: uh...
1: yeah. So I want to repackage what I heard,
3: which was that it was really a talk about the centrality of norms and identity. Finding and making uh, social systems more accessible. And I say that because what I really heard was we weren't communicating. So the traffic examples, 100 years ago, any uh, fluid dynamic introductory student would have known exactly what was going on because they knew something about Reynolds numbers. But it didn't get translated into the traffic engineers. So they didn't use what was well-established in fluid dynamics to establish to understand that the, that the flow characteristics and mass weren't being applied. And so, what really that came into has had to do with silos and norms, and the sense of identity which you brought out. And it's really that interaction through a systems lens, which again, complexity science is nothing more than systems science, which has been around for well over half a century—you could say easily a century—and it's repackaging what we already
2: understood, but bringing it into a broader frame. So, uh, I, I think I disagree with you that, that complexity science is nothing more than the system science that's been around for, for, for 50 years. Um, because the, there are notable, also technical advances on understanding the structure of networks. For example, on the, on the, uh, the structure of financial networks, you, know, you can do quantitative analysis if bankers willing to listen or even understand it. But you could do that, and central banks are doing that to a certain extent technical analysis about the structure of networks and which types of networks are stable and unstable that you, there's no way you could do this years ago. So there's a real advance, you know, but as any science progresses, it's slower than you want, but there's really some interesting stuff there. Um, so central, so social, the other, your other point is social norms are, are absolutely essential, and they're, they're often certainly excluded from the science, they're not excluded from the norm, from the frames as much, because But it's not the only thing. I mean, there's a strong emphasis also in my examples on social norms, but not exclusively. There's also really understanding the network structure. Um, One of the important thing, you know, one of the important aha's for me, and also in my corporate career from complexity was to understand that there are things that you, that are irreducibly uncertain. There is stuff that there is no way we'll ever be able to forecast because you simply cannot know it and you understand that from a complex system. And so one of the elements of the complexity frame would be that, that it, it would help you talk about the fact that there are some things that you just will never know and, and that's a language that's in a sense, out of bounds in the other frames, because they are very much about knowing and forecasting and knowing the solution. And so, this is just another element besides social norms. This irreducible uncertainty is another element. Emergence is another one. I think that, that it, it, the fact that system-level properties are not, cannot be argued back to, to agent properties, is a huge thing. In, in, so, so, so social can groups, talk about yes? the, line, but the emergence has been around well before the
3: complexity. There's lots of discussion of emergence in lots of systems. OK, but, I'm, already, you know, you know,
2: but I'm not saying that this is particularly new. But the, 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 the what we are hoping to do with this book is is to translate the consequences for public policy debates. And at least some of the reviewers so far have thought that that had not been done before. But maybe there were two We're going to have time for but, one final question. I I love the word silo.
0: Um, as Roland knows, because he was my client twenty years ago in Amsterdam, I'm an international lawyer, and um, and and Mary Kennedy also knows um, that we dealt with network systems, we dealt with complexity, doing business in multiple countries, setting up ventures. But what I see now, living in And my doctor, and then I can go crazy in my head. My doctor in McLean does not call my doctor in Hyde Park, and they don't talk. So the doctor in McLean focuses on she's got depression. The doctor in Hyde Park has no idea where I disappeared to. My husband thinks I'm well. I've got two of the best doctors in the country, and they aren't talking to each other. That's a silo. It's a complex disease. If people aren't talking and understanding that you can't look at just one area, you have to look at the complexity of the whole person, their background. Same thing in law. So I'm a lawyer. What we have now with the Federal Bar Association, they're cutting money for, they're closing mental health institutions. In the Netherlands, they don't have them anymore, but here they have them. They're closing them so people are out on the street. They get picked up by the police, they miss their parole end up in the prison. The prisons are run by private corporations whose main concern is making profit. So until people start realizing the social consequences, of um, these simple, you know, one person, the government cuts here, so they, you know, but they, it, it costs a lot more money, well, either medically or legally, to do what they're doing because they aren't looking at the whole system.
2: Yeah. Um, so very brief answer, because I think we need to get people out of here on time. I think, absolutely, so, Connecting stuff is, is important, getting beyond silos is, is crucial. But the thing, though, is that connecting everything with everything is suboptimal. And so, the, the trick what, what network theory and, and complexity starts to help is just to understand well, what are the efficient, in, what's the efficient level of interconnections that makes the system work more effectively? That's a very hard question, right? You can do it for you know, little toy networks on paper. But underst- doing it for social networks is a lot harder. Um, but people do do it for epidemics. I mean, one of the great uh, examples um, I always find is you know, when you have an epidemic, you, you know, immediately politicians and certain, the newspapers say, "Oh, we have to inoculate the, um, you know, the elderly and the children." Well, those are exactly the wrong ones. Right? you have to inoculate the the connection points in the network. So it's the bus drivers, it's the nurses, and those are the people you have to get at first. And and that comes from understanding the the network structure and and the importance and how you intervene in in a network structure. Now in epidemiology, people have figured this out, but it's again not yet as much part of a policy narrative, because faced with a serious epidemic, it takes a tough politician to say, we're not going to treat the children and the, and the elderly first. We're going after the bus drivers and the nurses and people to go away so the so, so, so complexity frame, I think, to me, allows you a richer understanding and a richer narrative around those issues that is not accessible today.
1: Unfortunately, we are out of time. We're going to move
0: to the raffle. But Ooh. first, please join me in thanking Roland Cooper.